Blog Talk Radio. Aloha. Welcome to Talking Pictures. I'm your host, Paul Booth. I, I, I have to start this show by saying um, what I'm about to say does not reflect the opinions of today's guest, uh, the PR rep, Mr. Jonah, our buddy, who uh, set up this guest. Uh, it does not reflect the opinions of any people involved with this show. I, I felt the time as a host. Uh, I'm not going to get all political here because we believe in democracy and understand how it's taken such an interesting turn. But I just wanted to say that if you're out there right now, the world needs peace and we kind of now need it more than ever. And there were, I kind of wanted to write something to say today, but I decided not to, cause I didn't want to at this tender time, uh, drive anyone away from the show or make anyone think, you know, it's still a touchy subject. So we just wanted to say, because this is, uh, I'm not even going to say what kind of point in history we're at, but we wanted to acknowledge that. So today we're going to be interviewing a filmmaker named Tim Kirkman, who made this film, uh, Lazy Eye. And that's a really interesting title, given that I saw it, um, without spoiling the movie, maybe he can bring on uh, some of what that is, uh, uh, the subtext of it. But uh, again, this film is for mature audiences. We do not censor a film or subject matter or a point of view or what a guest says. So that's the beauty of this show. And, you know, with that comes kind of how, I, I found myself today for the first time ever that I guess I did censor myself. So I broke my own rule because I didn't say how I really feel right now with these election results. But um, as we get back to Mr. Tim Kirkman's film, Lazy Eye, uh, the brief synopsis here, uh, just going off the log line, passions reignite and secrets revealed when a graphic designer reconnects with the great lost love of his life for a weekend tryst at a house in the desert near Joshua Tree. Now, for those of you that don't know, Joshua Tree is this really cool, or well, I've only seen it in movies or music videos, or uh, it became obviously an iconic place for Mewtwo's, uh, I, don't, I don't know if that was their debut album, but um, so that area is, you know, a lot of people associate it um, with, drug users or trippers or there was a great episode of entourage where they took acid and went out to Joshua tree and I'm not spoiling anything here. So um, with that, I see that we have, we're now joined by the uh, director, Mr. Tim Kirkman. Are you there? Hey, how's it going? It's going fantastic. Thank you for joining us today. Yeah. Happy to do it. Thanks for having me on the show. No problem. How's New York city today? It's a glorious, beautiful day in New York city. Fantastic, fantastic. I I wanted to let you know that I, I did an intro uh, that I, I separated you and Jonah and everybody from the historical times that we're dealing with and we won't waste your airtime with, but uh, I just want to let you know <laughs> when you get the episode that our show had to do it and I made sure that it was all linked to me. So nothing okay, crazy, cool. just mentioning it. 
Uh, so I did give them the log line and I was just kind of explaining what Joshua tree is. I, I would like to yeah. hear since you're in New York, you know, please tell me why Joshua tree. Well, I live in Los Angeles. I'm just visiting New York because we're opening the film here and I'm doing some promotion here, but I live in Los Angeles. So a lot of the weekends that I, uh, try to get away and clear my head I have been in Joshua Tree over the last few years and it's one of my favorite places in the world and so when I started thinking about this story and how I could write a movie about these two guys who had shared a summer in New York City 15 years earlier but reconnect I thought what's the most romantic place that I could reconnect two people for a weekend and it was obvious to be it needed to be Joshua Tree now um I, I personally, myself, this show, all of its producers, we cannot stand labels. So how would, what genre would you call this film? Because I, I don't even like saying it. People need to hear it, but what would you consider it? Um, what genre? It's a drama. It's a romantic drama. Exactly. Thank you. I'm, I'm so glad to hear that. I, I don't like using what people would classify it as. And I liked that it... Um, you know, had some nice twists and turns. I actually, uh, is there a film that influenced you or, uh, without being too personal, is it, was that a, a personal situation? Cause I know most of us only dream of ever getting to sit down and, and, you know, have some of those conversations with people that we knew in our life. So what did that kind of spawn from? Um, well, it's a couple of things. I mean, as a filmmaker, I, I would say there were definitely some inspirations, um, the Before Sunrise series that, or the Before series, I think they call it Richard Linklater's movies with Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy, where there's a, a connection and then a reconnection and then another reconnection, you know, over yeah. a span of, I think, uh, 25 years. And I really love those films because I'm drawn to uh, films where people talk a lot and there's not a lot of spectacle, or at least the spectacle in the film is the emotional uh, upheaval in each of their lives or, or the dramatic stakes are involved in the interpersonal relationships. Um, I'm just drawn to those movies. I know they're not everybody's cup of tea, but um, I set out to see if I could do that. Um, and I'd never seen, uh, you know, I, well, actually, I, I had seen that in a couple of other movies too, where the um, a movie called Weekend, which was also a very chatty movie between two people. And I mean, some of my favorite movies, and Harold and Maude, which is referenced in the film, is, is really dialogue-driven. Um, and it's two people largely arguing the entire movie about what's the best way to, to live. And my favorite movies are, are essentially filmmakers arguments about what's the best way to live, you know, what's the best way to live a life. And um, so I set out to do, to do that, see if I could make a film that um, really took on some of the things that I was thinking about in my own life um, you asked if it had come out of a personal experience. I would say every movie that I've ever made comes out of personal experience. And this specifically uh, was triggered by somebody who contacted me several years ago, um, kind of out of the blue, somebody who had ghosted, uh, somebody who I had thought about over the years many, many times and wondered what had happened to him. And when that happened, when I heard from him, it was really, uh, it was a trigger. And it, it was, a, 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 it coincided with the time in my life where I was turning 40 and I was, um, my eyes were changing and I have amblyopia. So I thought, Oh, that could be an interesting, 
um, parallel, you know, getting older, looking back, reminiscing, wondering about the one that got away because everybody, if you've ever if you've been alive long enough, you've got somebody <laughs> in your past. You know what I mean? Right. And so I thought, hey, this this could be a really good movie. Uh, to, this could be a movie that I could do what I wanted to do, you know, to write a movie where it's basically a two-hander. I could do that. But more than anything, I wanted it to be a movie where being gay wasn't the obstacle because as a gay man, um, I've seen a lot of movies about coming out and AIDS and discrimination and those kinds of things. And those movies are important. I've made some of those movies. But I think that LGBT cinema in particular, I mean, I know you don't like labels, but I think labels are actually really important in some cases. And in this case, I think it's, it's essential. I think it's important to label films that have LGBT content if we're only to, um, discussing them in a, in a social context. We have not had a lot of narratives in the history of LGBT cinema where, um, we are tr- where being gay isn't the problem of the film. So I embrace, narr- I embrace those labels when we're talking about them in this context. I wanted to make a movie where being gay wasn't the obstacle of the film. I wanted it to be just a given. So in that way, it's critical for me. I mean, as well, a, you, as pulled, a you pulled that off spectacular. And, and, and all I meant was we don't like, I, I just feel we're just in such a labeling culture right now that everybody has to be rich or poor or they're black or they're white or they're gay or they're straight. Sure, sure. I sure. think definitely what you were saying is, um, yes, in terms of the cinema, and yes, there was there wasn't a hate crime, and there wasn't a guy whose dad disowned him, and there wasn't right, those things right. that tend to be you know slid in. I, that I really appreciated. Um, I, on a side note, I loved that your lead actor looked like Eric Clapton. Um, <laughs> I saw that, I was like, hey, Clapton's in this movie. Um, Clapton, that's hilarious. And then I'm and going Lucas through- will love that. Oh yeah, I mean, I, th- I mean, obviously Clapton's like seventy-one or something, so it was like, but I thought that was pretty cool. Um, one thing I wanted to mention here: a young Clapton. <laughs> yes, a young Clapton. <laughs> Clapton went back in time and decided to do this movie. Now I'm just looking at the bios. Um, we never talk about budgets. We never talk about anything. But I'm, I'm, uh, I can tell just from having the pleasure of seeing so many films. Uh, for this has our gig that this was something where uh, you, you know how it is where it's like you can tell whether or not the crew was sleeping in vans or whether or not you had a production designer and I just wanted to make a note here uh, that you had Wendy Chuck I was actually a production assistant on the Descendants they filmed on oh cool uh, I yeah the island I'm from and what a crew what great people but uh, so I think this is really cool because I wanted to talk about your two main actors. Uh, I see here that Lucas is a graduate of NYU. uh, Has appeared on Broadway. Pardon? Yeah, so is Aaron. They're both grads of the Tisch program. Oh, okay. Well, that's like the instant uh, uh, for listeners, audience. We we also love to use this show as an educational tool. We don't assume that everybody knows everything. Uh, NYU School of Tisch, Tisch School of Arts is like the instant stamp of legitimacy. Um, so I really liked what I, the, the big question I had was since this is such a talking movie and, and I actually gravitate towards those two because you mentioned before sunrise, before sunset, I loved those. I loved the idea. I loved all the times I've sat up all night talking with a female friend or a girlfriend I had for seven years. And you captured this so perfectly 
Uh, how long did you did it take for you guys to shoot this? Uh, Twelve days. We were three, nine days in Joshua Tree and three days in Los Angeles. Wow, that's a lot of dialogue for nine days. Yeah, it was. But again, these guys are trained. They're theater trained. They're 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 pros. They're amazing. They, I I I feel like, and the crew that you mentioned, um, they're all professionals. It was a it was a tight crew. It was a lean crew, but we had every department. You know, nobody worked for free. Nobody was. Everybody was housed. I mean, it was it was a lean budget, but it was also a budget where nobody got rich, but everyone was paid. I'm really proud of the the fact that the movie is. Uh, we, my co-producer, my producing partner, Todd Schatz, and I set out to make a, a film where uh, we could look at what the uh, a reasonable and sustainable business model for independent filmmaking. And I'm not saying we didn't get any favors. For example, our executive producer got got us uh, five songs from his record label that he runs. For example, that's music that we didn't have to pay for there are a couple of other like instances like that but if you labored on the film if you worked if you spent hours you were paid and so it was the goal was also to to say this is a sustainable business model or or not like you kind of find out if it is because i'm really tired of going to film festivals and talk you know you say you don't talk about budgets i totally right. respect that but like at festivals often one of the first questions is, what was your budget? And right. I'm so sick of hearing independent filmmakers say, well, we did it for $25,000. And all I want to say when I hear that is, then your set wasn't safe. Oh, then right. Your, yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't, yeah, no first AD. There's no safety. Yes, correct. I don't think people understand that that, that is not a sustainable business model. When people are stealing content or sharing content or legally downloading or, you know, and then people are going out like like me as an independent filmmaker and producer going out to try to raise money, um, investors hear that and they think, oh, well, they made it for 25 grand. Why can't you? And I'm like, because I want people not to get killed. I want them to sleep somewhere other than a car. I want their labor to be at least meaningful. You know, so it just – and so if we can't make movies that are safe and where people can make a living and pay their rent or at least pay for their gas, then I don't really – I can't really justify doing this anymore. Um, oh, right. Yeah, I mean because now know what I mean? With the, yeah, I mean with, with the – with that there's no more video store sales or there's no more uh, very – you know, yeah, you get those week-long theatrical releases, which probably just goes oh, yeah. to, you know, four-walling. Um, correct, correct. It's a losing pro- proposition. Yeah, and, and and I get what you're saying, and I, I, I obviously wasn't laughing at you. I was laughing because I've I've <laughs> I've made those films where it's like, okay, everybody, the pizza's here, or it's like, right, don't right. get a stain on that shirt. We need it for twelve days, you know. Like, so I can I definitely understand that where that's kind of uh, I think everybody has to go through it. I think there's kind of a flip side of uh, people don't no longer have to like study film history and they don't have to like crew and they don't have to PA. They can just pick up a camera and all of a sudden they're a director and they forget about those things. Like you're saying, like safety and understanding that someone taking care of, you know, like you're saying a PA to close off traffic. So you're not having to worry if somebody comes flying up the 10 and, you know, runs over your DP. Um, 
but I notice here, I, I like to stay away from reading bios because I don't want to get too uh, pulled away from it by something else. Um, sure. So I apologize. I kind of just wanted to give a shout out to the descendants because it was my home island. But um, can you tell us what it's like? Because we've never had a guest. Well, I'd have to go back in the archives, but your episode 152 uh what was it like to receive a Emmy and a Spirit Award nomination? Oh, it was great. I mean, it was completely unexpected. Dear Jesse was my first film, and it was a documentary about me and Jesse Helms, the senator from North Carolina, who was at that time the most anti-gay senator in the history of the country, the most vocal uh, opponent of, of gay rights and, and the rights of immigrants. And, I mean, a lot of other issues as well. He was in opposition to the arts. He was a major um, – advocate to, you know, of, of getting rid of the art, the NEA and things like that. But he was, he and I were born in the same hometown. And so I, I, I made a, a personal diary documentary where I got grabbed a camera and my dad's truck. And I drove around the state of North Carolina asking people why they support or oppose Helms. It was a, it's kind of in the spirit of the filmmaker, Ross McElwee, who's one of my heroes. He, um, it's a very personal diary type first person documentary. And, and it was, it was a very, it was a tiny little movie that I made and, and, and it got some attention at different festivals and HBO ended up buying it. And then after, actually after it was in theaters had a a short theatrical run and that's where HBO saw it and, and they bought it and um, aired it on their real life series on Cinemax and, uh, and then later, you know, during the award season, they submitted it for consideration um, for the Emmys because it had aired on cable and it was nominated for writing, which I, I couldn't, I was over the top. I couldn't even believe it. I could not believe I got an Emmy nomination, but I was thrilled. And then when I went to the award ceremony, um, the, the attorney, Alan Dershowitz, um, was the person who was reading the nominees and he called me, um, Tom Kirkman. And so <laughs> for, he will my one moment at the Emmys, my name was not only you know read incorrectly. I I now refer to him as Adam Dershowitz. Forever, <laughs> he will be Adam Dershowitz for me. Well, I I'm sorry. So, yeah. we, we you know we brought that up just because we wanted to say we've had an Emmy winner on. You know how us LA people are. No, I'm just kidding. Um, That's very so funny. I didn't win. I, always... I lost to like a to like a, a documentary about frogs or something. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I mentioned that because I. <laughs> I want people to know and understand the diversity of the filmmaker. So I saw that and wanted to mention that, but we, we got into <laughs> talking here. Jonah always tips me off because he knows my sensibilities and I've done so many shows with him. He always tells me who he knows I'm going to like talking with. So I've, I have this fatal flaw. It's my biggest flaw as a host. I forget to say why we're on air today because I get wrapped up oh. in this talking film. So why are we here today, Tim? Mr. Oh, we're here to talk about uh, I don't know what we're why we're here exactly. I mean I hope we're here no, to talk about my new movie. That's the promotional <laughs> work you were doing, correct? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We are here to discuss uh, my new film Lazy Eye, which is actually on t- tomorrow, November the fifteenth, uh, is on VOD and DVD, and that means Amazon and Google Play and iTunes and all those platforms um, that you can purchase and rent movies. Um, and it's in theaters in New York and L.A., and it's an independent film that I wrote and directed and produced with Todd Schatz. And, and where can we see it in New York and L.A.? 
Um, currently, it's playing for, I guess, three more days in at Cinema Village on 12th Street and then in Los Angeles at the Music Hall on Wilshire Boulevard. Oh, excellent. You know what? There's so many. We've had, I think you're like the 10th guest we've had that's been playing at the, the Music Hall on Wilshire Boulevard. And I've just so many times, it's like always playing when I'm not in town or can't make it. And I yeah, always yeah. want to attend. And it's like, when am I ever going to see this elusive movie theater? Like, I have a feeling it's going to be like episode 500 that I can finally make it. Um, congratulations to you. We're, we're always very thankful and happy to hear when a filmmaker, like you're saying, you're talking about business model, the seeing it come to fruition and seeing it actually play in the movie theaters. Now, did you get to go to a couple of screenings and do some Q and A's or did you just watch your movie kind of as a quiet guy in the back or what did you do? Well, we started at the Provincetown International Film Festival in June. That's that's where we premiered. That was our international premiere, world premiere. And since then, I've, we've been. To, I think Lazy Eye has played at 26 film festivals. And wow. this is sort of this is the end of that run. We played at festivals all through October. There are lots of LGBT festivals in both June, July, and October because of different uh, Pride celebrations. So we played at a lot of. of LGBT film festivals and um, the, the the opening in LA was last weekend and I, I try to go to as many as possible I mean that's not that isn't um, possible because a lot of them are at, you know at the same time and that's frustrating but um, I do I do love to go and I love to go to the Q&A's in fact actually after the Q&A's in LA and San Francisco and Provincetown we recut the film based on you know audience response so then that's happened a couple of times with my films. And I, I almost look at independent filmmakers usually don't have the luxury of being able to do, you know, test screenings. So right. festivals are a great way to, to, to do that, you know, to, to use your audience, to go watch it with an audience, see if they're getting the jokes, see if they're getting them the, the surprises and all the, all the points that you want them to, to feel and see if it's playing because seeing it in front of a, you know, a group of people in your living room, uh, even if they're the most objective people that you can gather, it's just not the same as as being in a room of people that are strangers who have no investment uh, in in your work or your story. Um, right, yeah. And I that, always said that's a, that anybody know, can get their grandma to like their movie. Right, and we even, you know, we try really hard. All the filmmakers that I know who are friends of mine who, you know, I love and respect, we all try to to get people – we don't get grandma. You know what I mean? We get people who are hard critics, and it's still not the same. It's just – it just isn't. Um, it's, there's nothing like strangers. So festivals are the, the purest way to watch a movie, um, in, in my opinion, and, and really see if it's working. So – I would encourage any independent filmmaker out there to build into their uh, model, their production model, a week of post-production after you've screened it several times. And, and it's so much easier now to go back into the movie and make slight adjustments. That's not as true of sound work. Like if, if there's a lot of sound work to do, it's much more complicated, and we had some of that. But that's why I say build in a week where you pay your you know, sound – and post your your color grader and all the people who your editor get them all on board to and to invest in this idea and and you'll 
I think it's really, really valuable. I'll shut up. I think I'm. Oh, no, 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 no. Circle, I mean, cause but, that, that yeah. was going to lead me. That leads me to talking about the cinematography, which like you're saying, uh, the sound, the editing, I graduated film school. I swear it was the day everything went digital. We learned 16 millimeter film. We learned cutting on a, and we were recording on Nagras and then all of a sudden it was oh, like wow. none yeah. of that info became useful. And it was like, but wait, we just learned all this cool stuff that's pointless. So um, your cinematographer, like you're talking about color timing, all that and budgeting that in. And thank you for sharing those tips with filmmakers. Sometimes filmmakers come in and they don't want to share any tips. And that's cool. I n- I'm never pushy with it. But uh, your cinematographer, the thing that kept going through my mind, and this is what, again, goes back to it's tough when you're a filmmaker uh, reviewing films, is to think, how did they keep lighting continuity? I know that desert. Yeah. I've driven to Phoenix. So, what what kind of challenge did that present for you for you guys? Gabe Mahan is the cinematographer, and I think he's a master of. He's just amazing. He is a guy who uh, is in love with light and with cinema, and I think that if I could shoot every movie that I ever make, I would shoot it with Gabe. I think he's extraordinary. Um, so thank you for noticing his work um, because I think it's really beautiful and he made my work so much better. Um, so I, I, I can't speak to the, the specifics actually. I know that Gabe is really, he's so sensitive to where light is that we actually ended up reshooting one scene entirely on a different day after we'd already shot it and done all the coverage just because he wanted um, the light to match better. And I'm so grateful to him for that. It's, it was not fun when it happened, but it was, it really paid off in the editing room. Um, we both love, we both love to, to shoot at magic hour. And if you notice, there's a lot of shots in lazy eye that are close to sunset or sunrise. And um, that's just, it's so romantic and beautiful, <laughs> but um as far as consistent lighting, I know for his interiors, one of the things that Gabe likes to do is light the scene so that the camera can basically move anywhere in the room and you don't need to reset everything. That's a really important um, part of shooting quickly, efficiently, and on a low budget because you, you have you know, time and space to, to move around. Um, but, well, yeah, because I, I, the biggest thing was was I know how those sunrises and sunsets are, especially with one time I was driving back from Phoenix, and the, and Phoenix was an hour ahead, and we were right out by those windmills, or about a half hour before the windmills, and we could see the sun rising, and we literally, for an hour, watched the sun rising on the same level, because we were an hour ahead. And then finally it came up over that Joshua tree in those windmills area. And it was like, when are you ever going to see a 90 minute sunset or sunrise? So that's yeah, what I was thinking yeah. the whole time I was watching your film. I know how quickly that desert changes or that a storm rolls through or, and I think, yeah. yeah, you guys did a really great job of capturing that. I mean, that, I think like you were saying, you're, you're into characters when the, and what they're going through, but I'm also big on what the background is and what the location is. I mean, I'm not saying you don't know this, but I'm saying uh, the greatest dialogue, if it's not matched with this perfect thing. Um, I've actually never seen Joshua Tree. It made me want to drive out there today. 
<laughs> oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I was yeah, like, I, totally I know gotta see this about. movie now. Or this, it's this tor- play. It's sort Sorry, of, go ahead. You know, it's it's really. I think for me, it's about um, if if the audience is noticing inconsistencies in your lighting. I sometimes think that there's something else wrong with the movie because. Those are the kinds of things like like bad sound or sound that's too soft or too low and it's hard to hear or, or too loud or or I think those are the things that should be largely invisible. They you should feel feel cinematography. I mean, one of the things Gabe and I do is we we approach a scene where we and we talk about like what do we want the audience? How do we want them to feel in this scene? And whose scene is it? Like whose point of view are we in? Who who's going to win? Who 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 is weighed more heavily of the, of the characters in this scene and how do we uh, emphasize that without pointing to it? Like, how do we just, well, how do we make an audience feel that that's where the scene is weighted? So when light is changing or there's a sun, or if you see like uh, sunsets in every shot, what you don't want is for your audience to sit there and say, why have I seen the sunset six times, you know, in the last <laughs> 10 scenes? But if they, right. if you if you show six scenes in sequence and there, there's sunset in every single one of them, or low light and beautiful magic hour, and the audience doesn't even notice it, but they're in the story and they feel it, you've succeeded. Because that's, I think it's one of those things that should be more background than foreground. Does that make sense? Oh yes, no, totally. I mean, I your your film with all the elements, it worked. I mean, it worked perfectly and and what i really liked about it was was that it kind of i mean jonah sent me the work and it said mature and so when i was writing the synopsis <laughs> i had i had to say mature not adult film because i've had friends say why don't you review an adult film and i'm like yeah why don't we just have the investors sue us um right but uh but what what i liked about that was was that i thought what what is he, what is Jonah saying that's mature? And I'm thinking, you know, I'm not that guy who blames anything on film. I don't, you know, I've, my record is I watched 1500 movies in one year. And the only thing it inspired me to do was watch more movies. It didn't inspire me to commit one act of violence or anything. And, um, but anyways, that's a whole nother topic. By the way, before we have a few minutes left, I wanted to let you know, uh, Again, it's always, if you enjoyed the experience, every guest is welcome back for their next project or if they'd like to come on and review a cool film they saw, tell the audience about something, or we're going to be having some panels over the holidays because we know people will be with their families, but we know film junkies still want to talk film. So I just wanted to put that out there so you know. Um, Oh, cool. Yeah, because we want to make, because we've had multiple guests. We did a series last year for the Oscars where for five days after the Oscars, I had five different past guests call in and they all had completely different thoughts about the Oscars. And it did so well that there was like a running joke that people were after my host job because oh, like, funny. I would review something and then someone else would review it and they'd get twice as many hits. And I was like, wait a minute. So anyway, um, but uh, so with lazy, Eye, I just want to say that I was really impressed. I was really um, it what it, it didn't hit me until you were mentioning it that I think what was standing out for me the whole time was was that there was like we said there was no inciting moment it was just 
you know, Brokeback Mountain is always the most accessible film, I think, for people that are out there or that was like the bridge for me. That was like, I, I, I literally remember, I'm not bigoted at all, but I remember like standing in the hallway of my, of the movie theater with my girlfriend going, I'm really not in the mood to watch Heath Ledger make out with Jake Gyllenhaal. Like I'm the least, like I have nothing against anyone. Like I grew up with, like I lived with two gay men, my junior year of high school. Like they argued less than heterosexual couples I know. And, but I just remember saying like, I'm just not interested in it. And then I went through it and I came out, like I was just all heartbroken and I felt like crying. And so I just really loved how you were able to capture that essence where it was like, you're not seeing that it's not a man and a woman. And I, and I really, uh, I I, want to give you praise for that because I I realized now what was hitting me was that there was nothing tragic about the film other than some emotion. I mean, we're not spoiling it here, but you know what I mean? I'm glad to hear that. I mean, I feel like that's something, what you just described as a universal um, dilemma of, of, of film going in the world. And I don't think it's, and I don't think you're implying this either, but I don't think it's limited just to LGBT cinema. I think I've heard I, – I teach as well. I teach screenwriting and directing, um, and one of the things that I, I come across a lot is, for example, people who come to a film class and say they, they, hate, all, they hate musicals. And that's like either in theater or, you know, or on stage. But they'll, they'll say like, oh, I hate musicals, or I, I hate horror film, or I hate um, – you know, romantic comedy. And I'm like, well, watch this. It's called Bringing Up Baby. Watch <laughs> this. It's called ha- Halloween, John by John Carpenter. Watch this. Right. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's called Cabaret. Bob suddenly, Bossy, it's, like, love it's, well, it's just people who haven't, there's excellence in every genre. And I think there are a lot of bad LGBT films. There are a lot of bad musicals. There's a lot of bad horror. You know, it isn't really – if you're really invested in art or film as art, you're, you, those kinds of things don't matter. Like the idea that it's two, two men or two women or a man or a woman, those kinds of things fall away because you're not there for that. You're there to witness um, a catharsis of some kind. I mean we go to the movies to experience an emotional catharsis, whether that's a thrill – or to cry or to laugh or whatever those things are and to escape and then connect, not, not just with ourselves, but in the case of going to the cinema, go, connecting with community, even if it's, if it's just because there are other people present in the space, you don't have to talk to them. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's oh, like yeah. this idea that broke back, broke back was your, your entry point into LGBT cinema is all well and good, but I think it probably comes from a place of, you were culturally conditioned to, to oh, resist yes, yes. that. You yes, were cult- sure. it's, not, it's not the fault of you know, anybody but, but your own upbringing and your own cultural. Um, oh, for sure. Yeah, my dad would have whooped my ass if I was ever, uh, if I was ever mean to anyone, let alone if it had right. to get down to saying gay straight. So right. uh, that was a big thing in our household was, hey, everybody's human, so shut the F up. So. Um, but yeah. yeah, I like, I like what you're saying. Cause it is a, it, some of these things, like with, I think what you're just saying about film, I always love when people go, I don't like blues or jazz, but they love rock and roll. It's like, well, huh? dude, that's where it came <laughs> from. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. I mean, <laughs> right. and that's like, what I meant about like, 
here, look at bringing up baby here. Look at this film noir. Look at, you know, it's a, it is a little bit about understanding your history. And if we can just, I mean, just pivot back to LGBT cinema for a second. One yeah, of the things that sure. I, I also bump up against like young gay men and women who or kids who don't understand that marriage equality was a fight or even more don't don't understand that um, saying that you're gay was a fight and that that yeah. came with blood and sweat and protesting and a lot of it was it was earned in a really difficult way and I say that I stand on the shoulders of all the people who were at Stonewall and who were in the women's movement and you know all of the civil rights movements that preceded me and I happen to be of an age you know people who are let's say between in their from 35 to you know 65 or or in their 70s now there's about a 40 year period in our american history that will be unlike any other that was before or will ever be after and that that is a group of people who from 1969 to just a few years ago will declare their um Sexuality. This idea of coming out is is specific just to this group. Oh, right. Event, yes. What about as a producers? human event? It, oh, sorry. So, what about our producers? Is a, yeah, no. That's so. I yeah. mean, I'm sorry. One of you our producers. I mean? is, yeah, no, for sure. Because I was gonna say, one of our producers is 71, and he's a gay man, and like he knew people that knew Harvey Milk, and he would see Harvey Milk yeah. walking around the Castro, and. And so, yeah, it's like yeah. I was just going to chime in what you were saying. Like, it was like, yeah, people, like, really got killed over this shit. Like, it wasn't just yeah. the Supreme Court finally got Obama up their ass and then got off. Uh, but I'm sorry, you were, you were making another point about a time that will never happen again. I'm sorry about that. Go ahead. No, it's okay. I, I'm just kind of, like, you know, speaking in circles anyway. It's, it's really about, like, this idea that history is a critical part of um, – of your present, you know, like understanding your history helps us understand who, where you came from and it helps millennials understand like why, why people might be really invested in the idea of a woman president, not just as a symbol, but as something that's actually important for human history to move forward, like to grow. And I think, you know, people like the, the election of a biracial president in Barack Obama, someone who's, you know, for all, always labeled he's the first black president that's really important he's a he's a, a transformational figure culturally not and internationally it's not just it isn't just about us in other words it's not just about the his ethnicity it's about a cultural moment and you know if you look back at 2008 it could have been a woman it could have been a black man right those were the right. two democratic choices and in that cultural moment the momentum was behind it being a black man. You know what I mean? And I was right, like, from Hawaii. Almost, I mean, yeah. Almost, right. right. It's from Hawaii. And it's almost beyond our, it's beyond our control. It's like, it's what the culture wills into being. And I feel like gay, like cinema, just going back to cinema, there was a time when you could almost, you could watch cinema history. You could sit down and, over the course of a couple of years, watch all the movies that had been made or all the ones that, you know, are important to to see in the, in the canon of film history and, and even beyond. Now that's impossible. There's too many movies. 
Right. It's yeah, impossible. it is. Too, you can't yeah, even teach too, that way. Yeah, there is too. There is too many. I. I uh, the last thing I'll say that I'm going to turn it over to you to plug all your social media and again your dates because we're down to like four minutes. Um, Oh, sure, and I yeah. really enjoyed this conversation. I, I don't mean to cut you off in any way. Uh, I t- Jonah is always dead on when he says I'm going to enjoy a guest. And we both know film junkies can we talk. We keep saying Jonah. Days. Jonah's the distributor's publicist, in case anybody didn't know that. Oh, yes. Well, I just I always I always say that on air, you know, to give him a shout out. I should probably specify that one of these days. So thank you. For <laughs> <saying>. <laughs> uh, Jonah, the great wizard behind the curtain. Um, okay, so. It's, it's all your social media and then your your VOD date again and that you're screening sure. in the village in Lemley Hall. Yeah, we are uh, – Lazy Eye is playing now in Los Angeles at the Music Hall um, on Wilshire. We're in Cinema Village in New York City on 12th Street, and we go on VOD and DVD tomorrow, Tuesday, November the 15th. And that means iTunes, Amazon, all those places. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, Lazy Eye Movie. Um, is our on all, all across those platforms. It's Lazy Eye Movie, and um, the most important thing is I hope you'll share it. And the DVD actually has a lot of extras. Um, I don't know if that matters, but we have oh no, that'd cut. be I, we have I'd deleted, love to the extras. Yeah, we have deleted scenes, director's commentary, we have bloopers, we have um, interviews with the actors and me. We have uh, and then the cut of the film itself is actually. It's more adult, I would say. Um, I don't. And by the way, I don't mind calling it an adult film. It's not porn, but <laughs> you know that's I what I mean. Like, that's what I mean. Like, it's a grown-up I've film. Heard, yeah. It's a grown-up film. <laughs> and you, you right, know, we were able that. to yeah do a director's yeah, cut, no, you, which has yeah. Okay, well, no, yeah, because I I know our our I know our producer uh, our producer that I mentioned. He's a vast of what's been taboo and what's not taboo anymore, and. And um, I right. didn't want to call him up and just say, oh, hey, I have this, you know, LGBT film, so I just want to use your LGBT-ness. Um, he's, I've known him 15 <laughs> years, so he wouldn't be insulted by that. He'd love it. But um, I just wanted to thank you again for joining us. And, um, again, you're welcome back anytime. And uh, we wish you all the success with this release. Uh, thanks so much for having me on the program. It's, and I, I look forward to uh, listening to some of your past pod- podcasts. This has been fun. All right. Thank you so much. And you take care. You too. Bye. Bye. We want to just, again, thank Mr. Tim Kirkman. A wonderful conversation just now. Um, I, this always gets me amped up. I, I come on air and I'm like amped. And then when we have a great show, I mean, we always have great shows. But when we have that show, it just, I don't know. I'm going to start babbling. I don't want to do that. Like always, right now, more than ever, spread some peace today. Please, the world needs it. Whether you're listening in morning, afternoon, or night, make sure and watch a good movie today. Aloha.